Welcome to Derail Trains of Thought. Welcome to episode 16 of Derail Trains of Thought, your one and only storytelling podcast. This is Nick Hayden, aka Andrew the Wanderer. And this is Timothy Deal, aka the Klaus. Klaus? The Klaus, yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a that's my dwarf from uh, role-playing. Oh, okay. one, that, one that I'm quite fond of. He was a wanderer and he had and he was a little slow in the head, but he had traveled to so many places that he couldn't quite remember which accent was his normal one. So he, <laughs> so he tended to alternate between them. Nice. I like that. That's, that works pretty well. Yours sounded vaguely role-playing related. Well, to no. It was just it's the name I used to write poetry under, like epic poetry. Oh, And then okay. it became the person who would write poetry in, like, um, Strange Friend. Okay, nice. The, for a long time, names they invented in high school would transfer in different forms over and over again, like... Fred Militia, who's one of the main characters of String Fred, I used to use for like every sentence in vocab when we needed to write, you know, a sentence for the word, you know, uh. con conflagration. It'd be like, Fred Militia started the conflagration. Nice. It's always fun to, you need to recycle <laughs> all, all ideas like that. So. And you have a penchant for using uh, interesting narrators that have their own stories. and that, Yeah, I, I, I enjoy... Uh, Differing narration styles. One of these times we're going to have a topic on um, styles. Yeah. But we're not today, so we'll go on to uh, story school. So today's story school was actually suggested to us quite a while ago. Several months, actually. I don't remember. Greg was the one who suggested that we talk about this. The fancy name is participatory stories. Basically, any sort of story, like a video game, that you're part of the story, part of the action. Under that category, you can include video games. You can include choose-your-own-adventures. Yeah. You can also include uh, interactive fiction. Yep, which I'll probably end up talking about here. Maybe I'll mention it real quick, give a definition. Yeah, because some people may not really understand what that Interactive is. Interactive fiction, I, I guess, was like the way to play computer games back in like the 80s when everyone had DOS or not even DOS, Infocom and other such things. But it's basically a text adventure where you read a paragraph and you say you want to go north or south or eat the bread or take the wine or... Get E-Flask. Get, get E-Flask. Yeah, if you've ever been to strong um, homestarrunner.com, they, they make fun of those games. Um, I hear that one of my 8th grade students was telling me that, I don't remember which of the modern first-person shooters, Medal of Honor, or one of those, you can actually play the entire game of Zork inside of it. Zork being one of these really famous early oh, really? Yeah, and, fictions. And that's yeah. like embedded in a, in a first-person shooter game? Yeah, like in some computer you do the special code or something, you can play it. <laughs> that's awesome. Because Zork, I think Zork inspired a lot of people at the time. It's one of these... I have never played it where you go down and it's just a whole kingdom and you explore and try to find treasure. And Most interactive fiction in its, in its conception was largely exploring. They were like the game Myst, but without pictures. Where Myst was mostly pictures. Myst was mostly pictures. But it came up with this, the guy who created, or not created, the guy who kind of reintroduced interactive fiction to the internet community 
says the inter interactive fiction is basically a crossword puzzle battling against the narrative. Hmm. And I guess I have the idea that these participatory stories, video games, choosing adventures, are perhaps not pure narrative, but really are narrative versus some other thing. That's an interesting concept. And you certainly get the sense sometimes in in commentators talking about, sometimes when they someone complains that a movie was too much like a video game, then what they're saying is there was too much flashing, that flashing is too much, you know, spectacle just for the sake of spectacle and not enough heart or meat to the story. But that's an interesting perspective. I'm not sure, like, I can certainly see that being sometimes the case, but I don't know that it necessarily is always the case or that it has to always be the case. And and I'm not, I guess, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing that's a narrative versus a puzzle. A puzzle. You know, Professor Layton and I talked about it couple episodes ago basically puzzle games and every once in a while there'd be a story and it's sometimes puzzles connected sometimes they're just not it's like you do the puzzles so that you can reveal the next part of the story and i think a lot of video games are set up that way where you'll oh i gotta get through this dungeon in order so i can discover the next part of the plot that they're not necessarily i mean i haven't played a lot of really modern games and they work more and more on trying to meld the two I think, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just part of the beast that your story is not the only thing you're telling. Well, yeah, and that's a fair point. Any any type of participatory story is going to have another feature in it because it's not. You're right. It's not a straight up narrative. Even a choose your own adventure book. You're jumping. You're flipping through pages. You've got a certain kind of construct there that isn't necessarily a narrative construct it's more of a functional construct so i guess that's a fair point what do you think is the advantage of telling the story in one of these media well one thing is that it can really pull your audience into the story they have a vested interest in a sense by like say a video game by taking on the character that you you see on the screen go through it you become invested in that character in a way that you might not in just a movie Watching a movie, to a certain extent, is a passive experience. You just see what he does, and, and you go for, so forth. In order to progress in a video game, you have to actively be taking a part in the story. You know, you want you want your character to succeed because, in a sense, you are that character. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. Oh, go for it. Uh, <laughs> say some, you know, one of these, you know, stories that many video game players love, just because like, I'm not in modern, like Final Fantasy VI or seven. Say you did that at the movie or a television series where we had the time. Do you think it would be as good? That's an interesting question because we have talked about doing yeah. a Final Fantasy VI series, which I think would be pretty cool. I mean, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just curious. Is you lose the – and again, Super Nintendo games maybe don't count because the graphics are so yeah. pixelated. And, and, and that's a and – And because the, the like Super Nintendo graphics are so – uh, understated. It's kind of like that whole abstract thing where you get to project a lot of your own ideas onto it. That's true. Which actually, I think one reason why six works so well because you have that. There's these, you know, there's like little tiny block characters, but between uh, Nobu Master's music and just reading into things, uh -huh. it can really work. And I know some people really prefer the old school Final Fantasy stuff because they're because they don't like the look of the. The Japanese animation characters that they like when when they make it the way that, that their culture would do it, and then some people don't like it as much. 
which I'm not sure is fair, but <laughs> but it happens. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess they still this question stands. So you lose some of that ability to interpret, but do you? What do you gain then if you would make say Final Fantasy VI into a really well done? You know, the story's held just as highly or done just as well. Well, one thing you would gain, I suppose, in the adaptation is that you would make it all a lot tighter. You could take out some of the just wandering and killing that's, monsters and stuff, <laughs> which is fair enough. That's more gameplay. That's the, that's the puzzle part. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. On the reverse end of that, you're also, by, by tightening everything, that also means you've got less of uh, time investment, which can be good and bad. I mean... You can play a video game for 20 to 40 to 60 to 80 hours, depending on what game it is. And that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of entertainment value for your money. Yeah. But a movie is only two hours and then you're done. That's true. Which some people, that's all the time they can afford <laughs> to put in a, in a thing. But other ones, like, this is an investment. I get to be with these characters that I've grown to love for a very long time. Part of the reason I'm thinking on this whole line, which I think I kind of blindsided you with, is because I li heard this interview with Doug Tenaple, who um, I had never heard of before. But apparently he's the creator of Earthworm Jim, who I've never I've never played the game, but I guess it's very... It got in the Smithsonian, I guess. Oh, as, really? As all, they were entering some video games. And I know a lot of people like the music from it. Yeah. And Doug Tenaple has done a lot of graphic novels, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's what he does now. And anyways, in this interview, he mentioned that he got out of the video game business partly because he didn't feel like he could tell the story he wanted to, in video games that he felt like, to paraphrase, you had to kind of cater to the game. Mm. That's not exactly what he said. I might be taking out context. But it made me think about that because I remember I've been fascinated with the interactive fiction, this text-based thing I talked about, partly because I'm it's a programming language to make, and I like that sort of thing also. We've established before Nick is one of these really weird people that likes writing and creativity stuff, but also math, which yeah, kind of blows my mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of bizarre that way. It was interesting. I, I keep wanting to write one, but I can't come up with a plot to go with one without massive amounts of programming experience, partly because all the stories I want to tell involve some sort of important component of internal conflict change, which does not lend itself well to this sort of crossword puzzle nature of you can do it, and people have. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not good enough yet because I haven't worked myself up, but I do think Sometimes the stories I want to tell are hard to do in those media because of the sort of, I don't, I create more character-based stories and less plot-based stories. And plot-based stories, I think, are easier in, mm -hmm. in, in these sort of interactive stories. Definitely easier, I agree. And like you said, it's not like you can't do a character exploration because Final Fantasy probably has done... A lot of that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, and I know, I know there's some modern games that just read an article are trying to let your characters make moral choices mm -hmm. in the middle, and different things happen. To varying amounts of success, I think. Well, yeah, because the problem with making moral choices in a game is that you know it's a game. Yeah. And, and part of you, at least maybe not all people, for me, I'll be like, well, what happens if I pick this one? Uh, it's the same thing with choosing your adventure. You're like, you know some choices are horrible. You're like, well, I'm going to try it anyways. Maybe just back up and try again. Uh-huh. Which is an odd part about these participatory stories because you can purposely go down a very evil path. I mean, if you're given moral choices, like you could decide, well, just to see what would happen, maybe I will slaughter this person, yeah. this innocent civilian. And Since you know it's also a game, you want to see what are the 
game con consequences. Yeah. As opposed to what's the, you know, when if in life you were said, hey, you're going to kill this guy, most people would be like, are you kidding me? No way. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's an interesting dimension of these uh, interactive stories that I'm not sure anyone, for people who are trying to talk about choices in them, I'm not sure anyone's going to approach your choice in the same way they would in real life. Mm. Which, again, that kind of takes away a little bit from the narrative aspect of it. And then maybe, to a certain extent, maybe part of what keeps some people from enjoying it. I mean, we talked earlier about it being people wanting a passive experience when they watch a movie or something. Yeah. Or, you know, they just want to sit back and relax. I remember the first one of the first Choose Your Own Adventure books I ever read where I took one path and I, and your character wound up getting arrested. And I'm like 10 years old at the time and, and did me this. I felt I felt very bad about this. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a good person. I, this, I shouldn't have it. Why would I get arrested? But it, was, it made me uncomfortable. Incidentally, completely, only vaguely related, I just have to give a shout. If anyone's ever read The Lone Wolf, Choose Your Own Adventures, they were oh. awesome. Oh, yeah? They were, they were role-playing game. Choose an adventure. We had hit points and weapons. Oh, really? Yeah. Very, very cool. You can find them for free online now. Okay. But anyways, I, I had to throw that out there. But I remember I would I bought one. I thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. And I desperately want to go back to the bookstore and buy like two, three, four, five, and six. Mm. I don't think I ever did. And I was very sad. And for years, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, remember that book I played once? Which is interesting. <laughs> you, don't, you know, not that book I read. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, it's a very different format. I, and I know sometimes, since especially since you had talked to me all about this interactive fiction thing, and sometimes I'd go check out, because there are a lot of interactive fiction things online, or choose your own adventure things, mm -hmm. which is kind of easy to do now, what with hyperlinks and stuff, you just click it and it goes to the next thing. But I never really made it very far in one, because it was like, eh, if I want to read a story, I'll just read a book. Uh, if I want to play a game, I'm going to play something that a lot more people have played so I can talk to them about it. Yeah, what the, the thing with interactive fiction, I think, is the same thing that appeals to me in, like when I play Myst. Have you played Myst? I've dabbled a little bit, but I didn't get, once oh. again, I didn't get very far. Oh, I was fascinated with that game. And obviously, like everyone in the planet was fascinated with the game when it came <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. Um, but I, I really think interactive fiction and a lot of these, the ones that work really, well, I won't say a lot nowadays, but... There's a sense of exploration that you play it in order to see what happens next. You know, yeah. where, what can I get in here next? What happens when I beat this boss? What happens when I blow up this airport? So and it's kind of a so it's kind of a multi-layered what will happen next. You know, you read a book, you want to see what happens next to the characters. So you have that in the game plus the opportunity to get more fake loot and stuff. Exactly. There's there's a completion. A complete thing. yeah. You know, there's this <laughs> there's this flash game called. Um, Achievement unlocked, and the entire point of the game is to un unlock as many achievements as possible. I mean, it's a ridiculous game, and the achievements are things like first time you jump, and first time you die, and you know, first time you looked at the menu. And... I remember seeing a flash game like that. I don't know if it was the same one, but because it's they... oddly addictive, because you're like, oh, I'm going to get them all, and there's like 500. Well, and this one that I remember, like, you, you basically just push one button the entire time. It's like <laughs> buy the potion, push the space bar. Good job. And go then push spacebar to exit the store. Push spacebar to attack the monster. Good job. Push spacebar to <laughs> Which is I mean, is they're mocking, but at the same time, they're kind of a well, the one I played was kind of addictive because you do want to check the things off your list. Mm -hmm. There's certain sort of narratives where that doesn't work as well with because they're much more internal, ambiguous 
you know, literary, to use it, I'm not sure if that's the proper word. I mean, not that you can't do it. I mean, and I'm not, and I, I'm not one of those people that I think video games are art. You know, I'm not trying to necessarily downplay that part of it. Well, I, I think the, the, I think the interesting thing, the freedom you get in a game simultaneously loosens up the narrative. Like, the more freedom you have, the less, from an author's point of view, the less direction you have over the narrative. Mm. If that makes any sense. No, that, that makes sense. I mean, what... And I'm talking from an author's point of view as opposed to spectators, because I'm one of these, one of these people who play games, I don't want, like, ten endings. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because then I want to go get them all. I just want to, I want to hear the story the author wanted to give me. Uh-huh. Well, what about Chrono Trigger, though? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the thing with that, though, you play it through and then you don't have to necessarily... I mean, you can be at different points. That's slightly different to me. I, okay, I mean, granted. Yeah, I mean, I still would rather not, but I guess there's ways to do it well. There's exceptions to every rule. Yeah. But no, you have, you have a good point. I mean, when people talk about Grand Theft Auto, they talk about the world exploring and being able to do everything what the giant sandbox yeah. idea. It's supposed, there is a narrative, but no one really talks about that. I mean, maybe some people do. Well, it's but like SimCity, The Sims, whatever. They're completely sandbox, but they don't even pretend to put a plot. That's because true. You, because the whole point of sandbox is that there is no plot. Yeah. So I wonder if there is this kind of pendulum between, you know, on the rails, which some video games players don't like. Mm. I hear Xeno, Xeno Saga. Some of those games are like... Lots and lots of very long cutscenes. Like 20-minute like cutscenes, mm -hmm. which though, as a game player, you don't like, but if you're going for the story, you might, you might enjoy. Might, yeah to more sandbox style where there is no, or not much of a plot. And then you've got things like platformers, you know, Mario and whatever, that there's a plot in the instruction manual at the very least. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's an excuse for a game at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you ever heard or played of Sh Shadow of the Colossus? Yes, and that, I played, I ran it one time and played it for a couple days and was fascinated with it. Fabulous game. I, I've been wanting to try it for a while. I really would like to because... If you've not heard of it, I guess it has... You're basically on a horse, and you're riding around this countryside slaying monsters. Yeah, the idea is that you're... But they're all, like, giant monsters. It's not like Final Fantasy, where you, you run into a monster every, you know, two minutes. No, I, I think the entire game is, like, ten bosses, and that's it. Yeah. Which is a really fascinating concept. And I thought, first time I heard about it, who was it? It was the um, Into the Score podcast, is what oh, I first heard okay. about it. <laughs> which is a great podcast, if you've never gone and listened to it. Of all about video game music. What what's his catchphrase? The oh, only podcast solely that, dedicated to the academic, academic study of video game music. And he does a really good job. I'm not sure he's updated much lately. No, but anyways, besides our podcast is better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when I was playing it, really, the idea is that there's these like ten idols. I think it's ten that are keeping this princess asleep. Um, and so we had to go kill the physical representation. And there's just this giant, beautiful, like, Celtics-type world to wander around in. And at first, you know, when I heard about it, I thought, well, why don't you just get bored wandering around? But it's just, it's a gorgeous place. There's, you know, you got to figure out how to get up mountains. And, I mean, there's still that sort of puzzling out how to get to out-of-the-way places. And there's, like, yeah, it's not a compass, but there's something that tells you where the next person is. Well, that sounds like a game where the exploration is key. The exploration is key, and then and these monsters just I mean, they're just like 20 times your size, and you climb up them and you have to attack certain points, and it's it's a, it's a really really well done game. I only got through like three or, f probably about three or four of the guys. But and, and from what I understand there is a story that kind yeah, of emerges through it. Through everyone. I mean, it's not a real complicated story, but there's 
Yeah, but there, you, I think it's a very emotional because the atmosphere is so well done. You get the even as far as I got kind of this more and more ominous sense the farther they got on. Mm-hmm. So the plot was half like this sense of what's happening uh-huh. to you know your main character. And that's something I think video games are only just discovering this, but I think that's something where participatory fiction can create something that a normal story couldn't. In this kind of slow exploration, as you're exploring this virtual world, then in the a story emerges from the details. I, I, and I think that's why Mist worked, actually. I mean, because it was this very foggy, very mysterious, and every once in a while I get these pages where... And one of the brothers would talk, and you're like, they seem half crazy, and you're like, what's going on? You know, and then you figure out there's this whole kind of background story, which is not, which is tangentially connected to yours. Uh-huh. I actually read one of the books, too. They came out with a couple novels. It was pretty interesting. Portal is kind of like that, too, which it's remarkable because it starts off as a puzzle game. I mean, it really is, in a sense. You're trapped in this scientific ex- facility, and you're the experiment, and you've got this portal gun that lets you shoot. Uh, interdimensional portal that you go in one, you come out another one on a different wall or whatever. But as you keep exploring the game, there's this computer voice that talks to you, and you eventually find out that this computer has pretty much taken over the entire laboratory and has done all who knows what to the people who used to work there and gone crazy. But it's a really funny, it's got a really like funny sense of humor, but it's also kind of ominous at the same time. It's a really cool way of finding out a story. I do think telling story through surroundings and atmosphere is a place where video games can work really strongly because you're immersed in the location. I mean, that's where you spend all your time. So if you have hints as you go along, little signs or, you know, things breaking down. Um, I hear Anchorhead, which is an interactive fictional text, which is done in kind of the uh, Lovecraftian horror style, I guess is really well done and very creepy to play, even if you're just reading it. Really? Because, you know, you're you're interacting and the way the descriptions change as you're walking around and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I, I've only heard good things about that. I have not had a chance to play it. There was one called Sunset Over Savannah. It would tell you your emotion, emotional state. And you were like on this weekend trip and you weren't sure you wanted to stay at your job. You'd walk around, there'd be these scenes, and it's just on this beach, and there'd be little puzzles, but they'd be like these flights of fancy almost. And then it made you work through your uncertainty with your life through these these incidents that happened to you while you're there. And also very good um, playing with. But I, I really do think surrounding it with the setting and the plot and the pacing and the music, if you put them all together, it can work really well. Because it's that immersive aspect. So mm-hmm. It's like, I've gone from like one end to the other today. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do it well, I mean, sometimes you can hide. I don't know if this is something that should be advocated or not, but because of the, a- the atmospheric aspect of it, you sort of hide some of like maybe some of the pitfalls of, of your story. I, th- I mean, Final Fantasy has been telling the same kind of stories. Well, Square has <laughs> been telling the same sort of stories between Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts for you know very a lot of years yeah. now. Friendship is. Pow- is your power <laughs> stuff like that but because the characters are fun and the music is usually pretty awesome and the setting is always very cool you don't mind when people say a movie is like a video game they're saying it's bad because it's too much about mindless action mm-hmm. when people say video games are like are too much like a movie it's because you don't have enough freedom mm, that's yeah that's a good point find that balance between freedom and narrative 
and I think they're getting much, much better at combining the two, having this sense blurring that, them, blurring them, and having change. You know, things that don't feel so not the telltale signs to say, "Oh, and this is your next stage." Yeah, sort of thing. And and the, which is not bad because that's just convention that we're used to. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Honestly, video games really are at a pretty early stage of their development. We've only they've really only been around for about uh, around thirty years or so. Yeah. Think about how long film has had to develop its art stage. If you look at really early cinema, I mean, it's very people did things that just because they didn't know better. Mm-hmm. The idea of you know you could cut you don't have to show every single thing in the scene a character walking that you could just say okay we're leaving and then cut to them go at the other place and audiences would understand didn't even realize that at first be like the first when they first started messing montage that was a big deal wasn't it yeah yeah and it took a long time for i mean that was the russian filmmakers were were the first ones to really get into montage and then it took quite a while for hollywood to embrace that kind of stuff because they were always afraid the audience was going to get confused <laughs> those dumb audiences they can't follow anything <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure where we end up on all that. The one th- other thing I wanted to mention is that I had kind of this dilemma. I wanted to write in high school. My friend and I were going to make this role playing game in the style of Final Fantasy. Um, that was like the only game I played back when I was young, <laughs> called Twilight Dawn. And I was writing the script, and he was going to do all the programming. And he's now like doing artificial intelligence somewhere. Wow. Um, I think that, that's what I heard. If you're listening to this next friend, please let us know. And <laughs> let like us an interview th- with you. <laughs> let us know when we get back to this game. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun writing the script for it. And what I found really exciting was being able to write the random townspeople writing good stuff for it. Because sometimes you can play the role-playing games like, Hi, welcome to this town. Or, man, isn't a nice day out. Completely unhelpful, <laughs> you know. Like, you just want to make the town feel like it's not deserted sort of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's another place where you can lay a lot of clues and groundwork and relationships. That's true. Impressions. I just started playing Final Fantasy twelve relatively recently, and you start off in this pretty big city. There are a lot of townspeople, and of course you feel like you have to talk to every yeah. single one of them. But you get a really good feeling for the world that you're in, sometimes more than the like the rapid speed cutscenes will have time for it. Exactly. Um, but I've... Because we never got programmed. Um, I started writing things in that world in, in a normal, you know, short story format. And I really like that. I'm almost, don't know if I want to go back to the... Because it's been so long since you tried to plan it um, the other p- way. Partly that, and there, you can get so much, as an author, you have so much more control in a narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, a, in a normal, you know, paper narrative. Well, what the character, what the people see, what they don't see, what's important, you know... Simple things like in a role-playing game, well, what I like about a role-playing game, you can just travel and it's all monsters, you don't have to worry about it. Downside in the book, then, you have to explain how they got there and, you know, either just cut or do, you know, Tolkien-esque traveling scene, which is kind of a pain. That's the downside to the the paper narrative. But there's just, you can play with the, you're talking about, I like interesting narrators. The narrators of Twilight Dawn are the, is an interesting kind of first-person omnipotent historian, I guess. Uh-huh. I like words a lot, and you can have a lot of fun with that. Simultaneously, you know, video games are really cool too. So the the downsides are, and upsides are kind of hard to explain. I think for the for the reader, but I think for the artist, sometimes you can find you just don't have as much say in a video game. Yeah, it is depth wise, I guess, into the character. Yeah, probably if you have a 
if you have a particular story that you really want to tell, specifically a video game or participatory fiction, is maybe not the best way to do it. But it is certainly an interesting. I mean, I've tried my hand at very, you know, with limited success. I tried to do a choose your own adventure one time, long time ago, just with linking word documents together. And the problem is I didn't get very far because there was only one way I really wanted to go. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, I mean, that's like the wants, hard part. Yeah, and who wants to write the other parts? Because you want to make you want to make it in such a way that, well, if I was writing it, that all the parts would be interesting. But there's only one story you want to tell. I mean, at least it has how I'm built. Some people are built where no, oh yeah, no, I I totally understand. One time I ran uh, my own campaign in role playing, as far as you know, pencil, paper, D and D kind of roll of dice role playing. I had a lot of fun with it because I had this very complicated conspiracy that was going on behind the scenes, which was fun to do and sick on the players who were playing it, you know, because other characters and they didn't know what was actually happening, all this stuff. At the same time, it was it was a little tricky to make sure. I mean, they were a very compliant set of players. Not like sometimes you get these groups that purposely try to run off the rails and try to just do whatever they want to (laughs) do. Thankfully, my gaming group wasn't quite like that, but... I still had to make room for them to, you know, different paths they could follow or different doors or whatnot. Speaking of different paths, I once read this academic, I don't know if it was a paper, on choosing an adventure book. Mm-hmm. Talk about number of endings, especially, you know, from the beginning to the, you know, the first one to the later ones and how many paths and all this stuff. And there was one book, apparently, where there was a page that you could not get to unless you just randomly looked through the book to find it. That there was no linking thing to it. Oh, really? It was like this utopian island, like everything was perfect. <laughs> but you could only get to it by purposely going through and just finding flip, flipping it. Flipping through it. Which was playing with your with how people sometimes do those books. That's really funny. <laughs> I can't remember what, what the name of that one was called, but I thought that was fascinating. Because they were playing with within how they knew people consumed Mm-hmm. the Choose Your Own Adventure books. But you know you eventually go like, have it got all the endings? Well, that's like a video game where they put these the most obscure ways you can possibly get the super duper weapon yep. that you have to, you'd have to buy the, you know, the walkthrough guide or something. No or one in the right mind would figure out how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so they play with that stuff. So, so uh, participatory stories, video games, interactive fiction, other, I'm sure they come up with other things, yeah. you know, virtual reality. And people who are really into the D and D role playing yeah. stuff, they they some there are some groups that really enjoy telling a story through that, that way. Which is one I guess we haven't talked about much in this case, but would would join in. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a lot of immersive possibilities, and sometimes at the expense of an artist's single vision, mm-hmm. which may or may not be a bad thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, so go uh, play your favorite video game and uh, enjoy that someone had to figure out why the characters did what they did. And if you've if you've always been kind of so-so on the whole gaming thing, give it a think, try to think about it a little differently. Go there's, play Shadow Colossus. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's more thought there than you might think. In some of them. Certainly more than <laughs> now, if you, In most of them. Now, if you listen to this and go play Pac-Man, you're probably going to be disappointed, but... <laughs> Pac-Man's awesome. I mean, you don't... I mean, think, think about the symbolism of those ghosts. Well, aren't we all running from death? No, if you see Mrs. Pac-Man, it's a story of... It's a love story. You ever see how they match and how they Matt, I mean, I, is there I actually got, a game about that? No, no, Mrs. Pac-Man, like, repeat the first three levels, and then they shows oh, how they meet, and repeat okay. the next three levels, and then they do something else. Okay, see, I, I've I, only beat six levels, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't play Mrs. Pac-Man as much as Mr. I don't think. So, go play Mrs. Pac-Man and rave <laughs> to us about, oh, 
feed it and tell us the complete story of how they met and had kids and lived a <laughs> long, fulfilling life and left all their money to uh, a charity when they died. Yeah, I, right. I look forward to hearing about that. All right, so, <laughs> so that is uh, our story school. And so next up after uh, Pac-Man is our soundtrack. For its soundtrack today, I decided to go with another song remixed from Super Mario RPG. We've done one of these not too long ago, actually, but one of the first video games I ever played purposefully to hear what the story was about. So this is Gino's Woods remix from Super Mario RPG, Legend of the Seven Stars, as remixed by Orky Bash. Enjoy. <laughs> Our next segment is going to be Cinema Selections with Brian Churchill. Brian and I decided to do something a little different. If you've been listening to this podcast very long at all, you've heard uh, us harass Tim for never having watched The NeverEnding Story. Uh-huh. So we, he wrote on Facebook that he had finally finished it. So we decided that our Cinema Selections would not talk about some um, very worthy classic movie, but instead we will tackle The NeverEnding Story. Yeah. Um, and actually it works really well. Brian, I don't know if you know, know um, our topic this time is participatory stories, and uh, Bastion is kind of intimately involved in the story he's reading. He is. He becomes very emotionally involved. Exactly. So I, I figured this would be a good, a good uh, sidetrack from what we normally tackle. Next time we'll get to Metropolis or something Definitely. Like that. I really enjoy 80s humor. All right. Especially one that I think is... I would say a new classic. Well, well, Tim, first off, how about you... We'll start with Tim, and I have not heard what he thought of the movie. (laughs) Yes, I'm really interested, since everybody else watched it so much earlier on, and you get a different perspective. Yeah, that's true, and it probably is fair to call it a new classic, because it seems like a lot of people who I said I had never seen, they're like, what? How can that be? (laughs) 
And uh, I just, I was not fond of 80s fantasy um, at the, when I was well, growing up. Well, you saw up. David Bowie in tights. <laughs> that, would, that, was, that, would scar, <laughs> that would scar just about any kid. But I don't think that's why. I was generally, movies generally kind of scared me as general rule. I think Honey, I Shrunk the Kids gave me nightmares. Really? Yeah, but I grew out of that, thankfully. Was probably missing a little something from not uh, seeing it as a kid or 20 years ago. I certainly enjoyed it. I, don't get me wrong. I certainly enjoyed it. But there was part of me that was like, huh, Jim Henson's puppets are better. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a time or two, I don't normally notice effects, but there was a time or two, it was like, oh, there's the green screen. <laughs> but I really did love the, I really loved the final explanation for what the fantasy world was. I love the whole idea that it's a single place. It's like Neverland. It's a place where all the, your dreams and imagination take reality. And I love the idea of nothing about it being kind of related to a modern cynical viewpoint of, of imagination dying almost. I thought that was very cool. I just view this movie as a series of almost emotional snapshots with a obvious really big connection in between them. There are so many poignant moments. I think what makes this a different film from the other 80s fantasies is it is a foreign film, technically. You did see that, right? Yeah, it was Germanly produced, or produced in German. Germany. German, Germanly produced. <laughs> it actually is yeah, Germanly yeah. produced because there are a lot of German cinematic effects that I think, especially if you're a kid, but even now, if you're like 30 or any other age, I think it pulls you in. Mm-hmm. The clouds seem to be a very prominent feature of that. Uh, the clouds that represented the like the, the opening yeah, credits. symbolism yeah mm-hmm. there's a lot of symbolism in never ending story well why don't you give us some of the background i'm sure i'm sure you've uh, got some stuff there never ending story was at its time the most expensive film ever produced in germany well have any of you read the book i've read the book yeah and it was a massively popular book in germany yes it was and basically the film ends halfway through the book yeah and the second movie is loosely based on the second half okay yeah that's that's a good system but i i was under the impression that they kind of ran out of money and that's maybe why it stopped where it did i'm i'm not really sure because yeah tim you mentioned the green screen and that's a really important thing because you do have the green screen where he's riding on falcor the dragon the luck dragon and there's the process shot behind him, but you still have to create the dragon. And that's, <laughs> that's the true. real problem here. You have to spend a whole bunch of money making that kind of are like Jim Henson's world. But trying to create that from scratch, essentially, is not all that easy. <laughs> no, no. It, you can definitely tell they didn't really spare any expenses in, in this movie. That was... Very, it's very Jurassic Park. Spared yes. no expense. <laughs> it literally is, and that's my one of my big points with this movie is they they did spare no expense on a lot of it. German expressionism, a lot of it was about showing the viewer the fringe of dark human experience, and I think Never Ending Story does that. It takes you to the nothing. What's more dark than that? That's a really big concept for, I think, a kid to look at. Non-existence, yeah. yeah. Non-existence, and where's the energy from the nothing come from? What energy feeds it and makes it bigger and greater? Unbelief. Um, It's kind of dying of dreams and stuff. Right, and and hopelessness. People who are hopeless. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Yeah. That's what feeds the nothing. 
And it's people who have given up on their dreams and people who are hopeless, essentially. And that's an interesting concept for young viewers to understand. They were certainly weren't pulling their punches for the kids. They were letting them deal with some pretty uh, deep issues, philosophical stuff. Yes, and that's where we get back to German Expressionism again, because the imagery is vivid, and at times the imagery is scary, even. Specifically, Gmork, the wolf, oh, yeah. who was yeah. summoned by the nothing to kill Atreyu. That scared me a lot when I was little. But why is Fantasia dying then? Because people have begun to lose their hopes and forget their dreams. So the nothing grows stronger. What is the nothing? It's the emptiness that's left. It is like a despair destroying this world. And I have been trying to help it. But why? Because people who have no hopes are easy to control. And whoever has the control has the power. Brian, can you talk to us a little more about German expression? How has it influenced Hollywood? And what are some of the most well-known examples of it? A lot of this started uh, during the period right after World War One, and that was when the Weimar Republic film industry and the German film industry reached their peak. The filmmakers of the German film company that was called Universum AG, they developed their own style by using symbolism, and that would add a mood and deeper meaning. And that's really what gets me with NeverEnding Story is there's so much deeper meaning that it's multi-leveled. Hmm. And it also, German Expressionism, like I said before, it's all about concentrating on the dark fringes of human experience, which that's also a never-ending story. There's a lot of that. Fantasia basically almost ends, which is like you know, like the world ending. I mean, it's a pretty big amount of weighty subject matter. Some of the best examples of German Expressionism include Nosferatu, which is a film from 1922 and is directed by the German Expressionist film director, F.W. Murnau, and it's the story of Dracula, and is possibly the I think the best Dracula that's out there. It's vivid and is really not shocking, but powerful imagery that is really symbolic and stylized. Another one would definitely be Fritz Lang's um, Metropolis, and that's from 1927. What do you think we should do next? And that's yes. Would uh, I've read a little bit. I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately, but I've. Fritz Lang's movie M. Yes, I've seen that too. Is that another example? From 1930 or 31. It is German Expressionism in that it's more about working within the frame. And that was one of the things that I talked about in the notorious uh, sidetrack mm-hmm. was you have the camera sit there and you have the action take place within the frame and you don't do all that much moving. But M is... It's a crime story, essentially, and there's a lot of tension that builds up in between people and groups of people. I think it's a little different from Metropolis or from, say, Nosferatu. Okay. Um, it's still in the same vein, though. M's really, M's really different. <laughs> I think it's just because of the subject matter. Okay. Come on, boy. What's the matter? I understand. 
it's too difficult for me. Yeah, I cry every time. Aw, <laughs> oh, poor horse. It's a strong, that's strong symbolism too, because it's showing him emote as it's all happening. Like, he's experiencing it, and therefore we do vicariously through him. It's That's a tough one. It shows fear a lot. Like, it shows people's fear and and what could happen to them. For instance, the childlike empress, where she's pleading and to do something and just... I was always fascinated with the childlike empress. I always thought that was a... Very intrigued. I don't know. Something. Well, I then stole it from a book. I was like, wondering about that. If it. Got, oh yeah, I stole it. In <laughs> <laughs> Strand Fred, except that, except your Empress is, was much more bratty. Well, yeah, and that was it. Was it was Neverending Story matched with um, Shadow Moon, which is a novel sequel to Willow. Oh really? Yeah, well, that's interesting. The, the, the princess they sa- the baby they save uh-huh. in Willow gets. Uh, she grows up and she's just a horrible, wretched brat. <laughs> Wow, that's yeah. ironic. That's about the in- best part of that book. I don't remember it being very good, actually. But, and, and, <laughs> another moment, though, I remember of, it's like, wow, this is really, this is really emotional. When you see the rock biter the second time, and he's like, they were big hands. I had them, I was trying to keep uh-huh. them safe in my hands. And you're like, oh, man, that really kind of, it was heavy. A lot of people remember that one, too. I believe it. They look like big, good, strong hands, don't they? I always thought that's what they were. My little friends, the little man with his racing snail, the nighthawk, even the stupid bat. I couldn't hold on to them. The nothing pulled them right out of my hands. It, it is a very vivid, vivid movie. I mean, a lot of the images stick with you, and I, I, maybe that's some of the German expressionism, and some that's the emotion. It's a string of really strong emotional snapshots that create a movie, but that's what it is. It's, it kind of goes from one to the next, and it's probably even with a regular amount of interval of time, you know, relatively close, I mean, but it, it does it often enough where you really feel a lot. <laughs> you're, you're right. I guess I never really noticed that, but they're really, it really is punctuated by, you know, Bastion being beat up and then, then the intense loneliness he kind of had at the beginning. And then, you know, the, the moment whole... where he gets angry and he throws the book. Yeah. 
and that that's, that's really a, strong is that too, when you see it, is that when Andrei Treyu sees when he looks through the mirror and sees Bastion? Yeah, yeah. Is that when he gets all angry? I think it is. Yeah, that's an yeah. that's a very interesting yeah. scene all around. And I mean, and that's straight from the book. I mean, the books, the version I read of the book was fascinating because they would have one color text for the story about Bastion, another color text for what Bastion was reading. Oh, that's cool. The line between fantasy and reality, which is blurred by the end of this novel or end of this movie, is gets blurred even more in the book because at the one the Empress to kind of convince Bastion goes to this person who's recording all the events of Fantasia, which Bastion's reading. So like the Empress who's in the book the the fount of all the fantasy is going to the person who writes it all in stone and makes it. And so it's almost where what Bastion reading, what you're reading, what the Empress is saying are all right on top of each other. Uh-huh. It's a really intriguing... Simultaneously? Oh, well, almost. I don't remember exactly how it's done, but it's a very kind of mind-bending mm-hmm. bit in the thing. And the movie does that to a certain extent at the end where he yells and then... Well, and that it was a very interesting thing coming from my perspective because not knowing enough about it, I thought it was going to be a Wizard of Oz sort of thing. I thought a kid reading the book was going to get sucked into it. Like, I thought that was the main focus of the movie. I didn't know, because I had seen somewhere the image of him riding on the luck dragon. Okay. And so I figured at some point these stories were going to connect, but I thought it was going to be throughout the whole thing. So instead, when he, he's just reading and keeps reading, it's like, okay, where, where is this going? It was very intriguing, and that's one reason why it, when the two stories start interconnecting, it's like, whoa, that's cool. Yes, it's really original. There aren't very many movies that are participatory like this, at least, like a fantasy story. Not, not that I can, not too not many. I can think of. I mean, you have a play of movies like, oh, reading opens adventure or whatever, but not one that does it in such a visceral manner. Mm-hmm. You know, grabs the character and story by the throat and honestly mm-hmm. tries to grab us by the throat. It does. I remember, because I, I watched it when I was a kid. I remember in eighth grade, you probably remember this, Brian, you, you and I went to the same school. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our friends always being like, it is a racing snail. There's so many little mm-hmm. quotes like that. <laughs> yes, the big strong hands. I think I saw a movie that somebody echoed and referred to that line. So did, did this movie do well in Germany and also in the United States? It didn't seem to. One of those movies that kind of just uh, was good after it came out. <laughs> well, it opened to good reviews. It grossed $20 million and the budget of the film was $27 million. Oh, so it didn't even make its money back. No, not quite. I think it did now. I mean, it obviously has by now, but um, Time Bandits and Dark Crystal, they both gross more than $40 million. So that's some of the context. That is interesting, because I, I read a little bit about that on Wikipedia, and that is interesting, because I thought I had long been under the assumption that Dark Crystal hadn't done as well because of Never Ending Story, but I think I got that mixed up with Labyrinth, which I think was largely overshadowed by... E.T., which came out close to the same time. Oh, well, Labyrinth would be overshadowed by E.T. Yeah. <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> yeah. But I think, to be fair, I think even if Dark Crystal was was more successful at the box office, I think it seems to me that Never Ending Story has remained more prominent in the public's eye. Uh, at least I've heard more people talk about it. What I'm reading here, too, is it says, however, when released on video, the movie became one of the highest-selling videos ever released and has also become a staple on Christmas Day television. Oh, interesting. So it seems like it, it gained momentum throughout, and a lot of people still know it today. 
It's funny how some movies are like that. I think Wizard of Oz was very similar. It became more famous once it was released on TV. I could be wrong. I, d- I forget. Well, I think from the same reasons that we've been talking about, kind of, the, you know, it's a lot of emotional hooks. It's a unique way of looking at the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very unique world, like a lot of 80s fantasy is. It's very visual and very vivid. And that, that it holds up over time better. I mean, I'll get, you know, some of the special effects, you know, don't hold quite as well, but I think they hold pretty well for being, what, 30 years old or something like that? Well, plus, honestly, I like that it's animatronics puppetry. I think, like, you wouldn't have the same feel for, say, the rock biter if he was, like, CG. No, I, I, I prefer, no. yeah, I agree with you there. There's a certain kind of feel, and I, and I really loved the scene where he was uh, introduced to, I mean, it was the whole, uh, I forget what it's called. What's the term I'm looking for, Brian? Where you've got, uh, it, the rock biter was filmed to be really big, but then they stick it on top of the same film where the, the other cast is filmed to be really small. Superimposed? Yeah, I think that's superimposing. And because I study film and stuff like this, I know that's what they're doing. But it really worked well for that scene. It did. And the other characters that were along in that introduction scene, we see so little of them in throughout this whole movie. But you can tell even their costumes were spared no expense yeah. and everything else. I mean, we then we see them again like a little bit at a time throughout the movie, but not all that much. Mm-hmm. That is an interesting tactic, you know, to introduce the whole world with basically random people <laughs> essentially and, and then introducing Vantasia by just seeing it what's left of it that's true I mean it, it does kind of break any of normal fancy conventions I mean you know if you can follow the the structures and what's also remarkable now I'm thinking about it is how massive they created Fantasia I mean you see all kinds of landscapes but you can totally believe it's all part of the same world you do it's really seamless how it connects things together you don't really notice. You just accept it as all part of one uniform universe. So are there any other movies that have such a unique and big world? Especially big. Kidland? Uh, I mean, not big, but, you know, very multivaried in a very short amount of time. And at least this high-minded as well. There are a lot of really weighty principles about aspirations and realizing your dreams and hope. And When then the whole Bastion's whole, you know disconnect from his dad and loss of his mother. I mean, which is basically not talked about, but it hangs over the whole movie, Mm -hmm. especially by the end. Very true. There was a, actually, I think it was a Godzilla movie of all things that I saw. And the way that they inserted the main character's feelings about her mother was they just showed a picture, uh, like of her sitting, like a framed picture on a desk and it just shows that. And that's all we do. Therefore, she's dead, she's not around, that's all that there is, and yet it gives you so much. And with this, there's only, what, that one small little scene at the beginning where he's with his father, and then the bully scene quickly overtakes that. But the whole mother thing's, you know, vital for the end of the... It is, it comes right back around from the beginning. Yeah. And it really holds up much better than the second, you probably haven't seen the second one, have you? No, I haven't. second one, I mean, entertaining, but not at the same level, Mm -hmm. by any means. Brian, have you ever seen the third? I haven't. Okay, I haven't either. I've heard it's pretty wretched. Yeah. (laughs) At that point, they're just making sequels because everyone knows about Neverending Story. Right, and then 2014 is the tentative release for when they're supposed to be rebooting this uh, franchise. Really? Huh. Yeah, where they're going to go and supposedly re-examine the novel instead of trying to remake this film. Who's in charge of that? I'm a little scared now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Warner Brothers, the Kennedy Marshall Company, and Leonardo DiCaprio's Appian Way are in the early stages of rebooting the franchise and readapting the novel. Okay. Leonardo DiCaprio has his own company? I didn't know that. I'd assumed he would. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. I'll, I guess I'll wait with fear and trembling for that. <laughs> yeah, so there aren't very many years that this will be the primary version left. Well, possibly. Did you ever hear of that movie? It's another weird 80s fantasy movie, but did you ever hear of Return to Oz? Yes. I have seen I it I once. Saw it a long time ago. I've not seen it. I've seen pictures of it. and it's, I know it's like it's supposed to be a, a sequel to Wizard of Oz, probably closer to the actual books, maybe. But it looks so bizarre compared to the original musical. I don't know that. It I think it's pretty dark, really too. Different. Yeah. I don't think it was as embraced as much. <laughs> Obviously, no one's watched it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a risk, but I'm sure, I'm sure people will go see it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'll have to see it. Well, unless it just looks wretched, you know, it's like all... Here, the thing is, what they need to do is not... Like, so many movies nowadays want to overplay the parental problems. Mm. Nevering Story is not one you should do that. I mean, obviously it's there, like it is in this first movie, but, you know, you don't want to make it a giant, you know... It is subtle, and the subtlety works for the story. Yeah, I, and I think there's a lot of subtle things going on in Nevering Story, which is why... I mean, despite it being kind of a... What you remember visually are, you know, the giant turtle and the big luck dragon and the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. Um, giant turtle kind of made me think of Last Airbender, by the way. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> the What is it? The Southern Oracle? Where he has to jump across the... That gives me goosebumps every time. That part of the oh, movie. With, yeah. yeah, with the eyes from the... From the yeah, that's things. very vivid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They really do... I mean, the, and is the German expressionism, I guess, which I never knew. You know, really building up each of those moments. They really build up that right before he jumps. Yes. Quite a bit. I mean, they play out each they of those. They stretch it out, and that's part of the experience of the movie, how it's so how it grabs you you know the, the horse takes forever to die yes, yes that was bad <laughs> they really got me there and the, well in the finale where he's like i can't i can't you must you must i yes. can't you must that's true i had never i see i didn't know anything about german expression well, that, that puts a whole new light on it so brian how about you give us in case there's some poor person listening to this who's never seen never ending story how about you sell there's, it to us and there's probably someone else out there like me <laughs> <laughs> Undoubtedly, not everybody's seen Neverending Story yet. It's kind of a mission, maybe, for those who have to force people like you to see it. <laughs> of course, you know, the most disappointing thing about it, it ended. <laughs> that is. It's, they could have made this into a three-hour movie easily, <laughs> considering all this, yeah. all that they had to work with. They could have spent twice as much money and oh, made yeah, this the books, really the long The book's very feature. long. Yeah, but it is. It's like 400 pages. So I've had other people read it. I love the book, but they're like, it never ended. <laughs> <laughs> So, can you sell it to uh, to anyone who may not have, or or maybe just to someone who has seen to go and rewatch it, seeing that it's more than just maybe the the cool kid movie they saw when they were eight. Never Ending Story is a poignant series of emotional snapshots that pulls you in and deeply affects you and makes you think about life and really strong subjects that you really didn't think were going to happen. It's all about realizing your self potential. Wow, that was not... Man. I'm impressed. <laughs> Good for off the cup there. That'll wrap up our uh, cinema selection. Thanks a lot, Brian, and mm-hmm. thanks uh, for uh, for uh, sending me a copy and get, finally getting <laughs> me to watch this long overdue movie. Incidentally, this is my favorite 80s fantasy film by far.
that was Sinless Selections with Brian Churchill, uh, a special edition brought to you by Atreyu and Bastion. <laughs> And, uh, and the uh, special occasion of... And Falcor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was fun. Well, yeah, it was fun to do something a little lighter. But it is, I mean, there actually is a lot good deal in it that when you're a kid you don't necessarily know it is. And I'm glad you enjoyed it because I didn't know how much of it was nostalgia. Yeah. You know, some of those movies you watch when you're a kid, you're like, oh, yeah. And then you watch it again, you're like, oh, yeah. I was thinking just, I was thinking on my way over here about how much sometimes a certain movie after you watch it as a kid or even as an adult, you'll just sit and think about it for a while and then you'll have the same images impressed very deeply on your brain for a long time afterwards. And I think that's a movie that will, will do the very visual impressions on your mind. I still have this memory of watching the Chipmunks movie and about feeling very, very sad in a certain part. And because I remember just thinking about that part as I was driving back home after visiting Grandma's or something. <laughs> I must have been like six at the time. I still remember... Nothing else but the end of the DuckTales movie. Remember the DuckTales movie? Oh, yeah. Movie? Yeah, I had, I had which a DuckTales the, movie for a while. Which did it way earlier than Aladdin did. Yeah. I mean, it was the same ending. You know, I really <laughs> wish... I think DuckTales movie didn't do very well, and I really wish it had, because I think they had been wanting to do a Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers movie, oh, too. Oh, nice. Which, man, I can't even imagine what that would be. <laughs> <laughs> so sometime in Take on Tales, we'll have to talk... You'll have to have you watch... Uh, Puss in Boots Travels Around the World, <laughs> which is my earliest childhood memory. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So we'll wrap up this episode. Um, Brian, uh, Brian, you're not Brian, you're Tim. <laughs> Tim, would you like to give us uh, some contact info? Sure, absolutely. You can always leave us a comments at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. You can also download our episodes there. But today in the comments section, our question for you is... What is the favorite story you've participated in? Maybe video game, role-playing game. Interactive fiction. Yeah, I, I like to hear, you know, what, what other ones, you know, obviously I grew up playing Final Fantasies and a lot of people did, but I know there's a lot of other very good ones out there. Yeah. Nick and I are not the most prolific gamers. I mean, there, I, there's much more out there than I've ever touched with a 10-foot pole. Not that you wouldn't, just... Well, yeah. I, the trick is gaming takes time. It does take time, unfortunately. Um, oh, yeah. And do you tell... We, oh. didn't, we didn't talk about the email address. Oh, I, oh, I thought you were going to complete it. Sorry. No. So our email address is derailedtrains at gmail.com. Still, no one has emailed us. So we're very sad. We haven't actually finalized the prize yet. Um, well, we'll, you give know, you, we'll give you a hug. A um, tribble. <laughs> you Please. Know, you know the trouble with tribbles. Uh, there is a trouble with tribbles. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and please subscribe to us on iTunes, mm -hmm. and um, which is, in, in as much as anything, is a way for us to know how many people are listening. And please share it with other people on Facebook, on Twitter, and what other various things you want to follow or uh, share it with. Because I think people when they hear it, enjoy it. Yeah, um, we have some interesting things coming up. So we, there might be a preview at the end, so you can get through my uh, kind of dark soundtrack. So I guess I'll go ahead and introduce my soundtrack, which is. I thought first-person shooters, you know, early on were the ones trying to put you in the place of the person, of the character, of the game. And I haven't played many, but back in good old modem dial-up days, we'd be like, ding, 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 and then you, you knew you were connected to the internet. I used to play Doom 2 with uh, a couple of friends and had a lot of fun. We downloaded some wads, and we used to try to make some wads, which, you know, were the Doom levels. We play, I played one in the Death Star, which was kind of cool. Oh, nice. But, a lot of great remixes from Doom. And I picked this one called Crushing Headache. 
by the Orilcon. I should probably double check this how you say it. I didn't know you were such a violent person, Nick. I Plain know. Bloody doom. Well, you know what? When they get when you get really close to them, they get all pixelated. You just have to blow them up. <laughs> uh, yes, it's remix. Uh, this is Doom Two, Crushing Headache, remixed by the Oril the Oricolon. Oricolon? How would you say that? Oricolicon. Oricolicon. How do you always pick the really difficult to pronounce names? I, I just have a, I have an act for it. <laughs> so um, it's very atmospheric. Kind of makes you feel like you're wandering through uh, hallways on Mars or wherever you were, trying to hunt down alien demons. It's kind of like a zombie headbanger. So hopefully you enjoy somewhat. And so this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. So long.
on derailed trains of thought. You know, if you read this book, you're going to turn into a witch. But I'm a guy. A male witch. A wizard? Wizard, those, yeah. You'll turn into those. A warlock? You're going to be very bad. It's sinful. Don't you understand? It's sinful. Oh, I just like the plot. Ethan.